Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 140 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. Hello, Adam. What's up? Not much. How are you? I'm good. Very good. Yeah. This one, I'm excited. For, as always, I'm sorry. I always say I'm excited if you guys listen to this. I'm excited for every episode, though, so it's true. Uh, what do we do today? Um, back in June when we were at ALA, we got to interview Fiona Davis, who I've talked about multiple times on the podcast because I love her books. So I was very excited to get to meet her. She is, um, her new book, The Address, comes out this month. And so we got to talk to her about that in New York and Broadway. Yeah, we sure did. Um, she also told us after the fact via email if we ever wanted to come to New York, she would get wine with us and talk Broadway more, which I would love to take her up on that. Ugh, that would be amazing. Uh, yeah. Uh as with all of our like live interviews that happen at trade shows and things like that, I do just want to point out there will be back background noise. Um, we tried to remove as much of it as possible, but you know there's only so much we can do when we're surrounded by people because there's thousands of librarians all over the place at, at these trade shows. So uh, bear with that. I, I think you should be able to hear her just fine. I was able to when I edited this, but just wanted to give you that heads up. We are aware that it, you know, it's not as high quality as when we're sitting in a quiet library. So. If people want to get a hold of us, how can they do that? They can find us on Twitter at ProBookNerds, and we can also be emailed directly at ProfessionalBookNerds at Overdrive.com. We sure can. All right. Um, anything else you can think of? No. I don't <laughs> think so. I don't think so either. Um, all right. Cool. Fiona Davis is a gem. You guys are going to love this. We loved it, and I hope you enjoy this episode of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. This is Jill, and with us today we have Fiona Davis, author of The Dollhouse, which received numerous accolades, including via Time Magazine Summer Reading Pick. Her new book, The Address, is out in August and will delight readers in exactly the same way. Fiona, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So, <laughs> we're already stepping on each other's toes. So for our listeners who maybe are not aware of your books, can you give um, them a little introduction to the address? Sure. Um, the address is um, it's set at the Dakota, which is a very famous apartment building in New York City, which I can explain about um, <laughs> down the road. And, um, and it's, it's a historical fiction, so there's two timelines. One is in 1884, the other is 1985, and there's an element of mystery that connects them. And so you talked about how, how this one is set in a very famous building in New York. And so and your previous book is kind of along the same way. So Jill and I have been talking about this. We were actually both in New York City. We were talking about before we started recording. And there's so much history in all of those buildings. But what is it about these places to you that makes them such a great place to have a story told? Well, you know, I think... It, it all started for me, my parents are both English, and so we'd go back to England every three years when I was a kid, and in between, you know, trips to aunts and uncles and grandparents, we'd stop at old castles and palaces and wander around them, and to me, that was so great, because the history and who walked down these halls in the past, and here I am walking down them, and I think that's what fueled my imagination to 
being in New York where there's all these amazing buildings with history of their own and history that changes over time. And New Yorkers love real estate. I mean, where, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And and I think it, it, for me, it tapped into that thing of wanting to get inside those buildings and find out what it's like to live there. What was the uh, research process like? I'm sure your background as a journalist helped a little bit in terms of researching these buildings. Yeah, it did. It did a lot. I mean, first thing I do is really go into a deep dive into the history and find anything I can on the construction of the building, on on what's behind it. For the address, um, there was a lot about it's the Gilded Age, so you have these amazing books that are really stories about the history of how it was built and what was behind it and why it was a risky venture back then. Um, And so all that, to me, just creates a perfect situation to set a story. And so it's based on the actual history but with characters that are mostly fictional um, who inhabit the building. You talk about it being a, a risky venture. It's probably hard for people to imagine now because if anyone out there has been to New York City, there right. is not a single inch of space that's not taken up by something. But can you maybe talk about the fact when they built this, it was basically surrounded by like pastures, right? Yeah, and, and there was one newspaper article that describes the Upper West Side as goats, shanties, <laughs> swamps. Which is and, so ironic yeah. now when yeah. you think of the Upper West Side of New York. <laughs> right. Even in the 1880s, downtown was all built up. The Upper East Side was starting to get built up. But the Upper West was not because the terrain was really rocky and uneven. It was difficult to build on. I've seen, there's amazing photographs of New York at that time where they blasted the street grid. And so that was all flat. And then you'd have a cliff with a house on top of it and a ladder. Oh my gosh. Because it was up to the landowner to bring it to grade level. And that's why it wasn't built up, because it was just a Oh my god. Yeah, it's incredible. Sometimes <laughs> when I, in New York, or any really anywhere that there's these massive buildings you talk about in, in England, like, I'll go, in New York, I'll go to like St. Patrick's Cathedral, and not only about the history and everything that can be in there, but I'm always just baffled that people built right. these structures. Yes. I, and especially, like, even now, I'll see a new building, and I'm like, okay, that's incredible, but they have this technology. I mean, this is, you know, 100, 200, 300 years ago, even further back. It just, it never ceases to amaze me that a place like New York City exists the way it does. It does, and even in the Dakota, you know, the, the walls are three feet thick, and they use dirt and mud from Central Park um, for insulation, and, and it, it's just incredible that at that time, they were able to build that structure. So for the books, as you described, there's sort of the historical fiction part, and then there's more modern contemporary part. Obviously, with you know this one, it takes place in the 80s. How do you kind of decide what the newer time period will be? Yeah, you know, for for the address, I knew I wanted to do 1884 because that's when it was built. So there was inherent drama. Sure. Um, and then I was trying to figure out what the second time period should be, and I settled on 1985 for a few reasons. One is that it was a gilded age of its own with, you know, bankers and Rolex watches. And the other reason was that it was right around the time that I first came to New York, so I didn't have to do as much research. <laughs> there you go. And But the most important reason was it was five years after John Lennon's death, and that was a seminal moment in the building's history. And I, I, I knew I had to acknowledge it, 
but I didn't think it was right to linger on it or use it in the story in any way. And so, 85 was when Strawberry Fields was dedicated, and that's an area just next to it in the park that's a memorial to John Lennon. And, um, and so I could incorporate it that way a little more indirectly um, without, without just, you know, using right. it, which wouldn't have been yeah. right, yeah. for sure. Yeah. And so when you were ex- having these experiences real time, I guess I'm interested, did you know at that point that you thought you might want to tell a story like this? I, I'm, I'm always fascinated how people decide to become a writer. It's such a Herculean effort to even write a book. And I mean, and so I'm curious, like when you were going through these experiences, was it something where you're like, someday I want to tell a story in this setting or did it just kind of happen organically? You know, it was interesting. I have been a journalist for about 15 years and I was writing health and fitness articles that were a thousand words a pop, right? right. And I was looking for a, a new apartment in New York City a few years ago, and one of the apartments we saw was at the Barbizon, it's called the Barbizon 63, right. and, um, and that had been the Barbizon Hotel for Women. And I was fascinated to learn that in 2005 when it went condo, there were a dozen or so of the old-time residents from way back when who were grandfathered into rent-controlled apartments on the fourth floor. And I was really interested in what it's like in the elevator when they meet, you know, the guy who has the penthouse that just went for $17 million. And so as a journalist, I reached out and I left very polite letters with the doorman asking for interviews. And people love to be interviewed. I'm sure you found this. Yes. Yes. I did not get any answer. I got nothing. And I thought, well, okay, I couldn't drop the idea. And I thought, well, maybe it would make a novel, because then I could use all this real history and then make stuff up, right? which is terrifying if you're a journalist, because <laughs> you're not supposed right. to do that. Um, and so the more it stuck with me, the more I thought, all right, let me see if I can pull it off. And I just got obsessed with it. I really enjoyed it. Um, I really approached it the way I would a journalism piece of, all right, do all this research, make an outline, and then write. So I'm not one of those writers who sits down with a blank page and goes, all right, let's see where I go. Right. I need direction. Okay. And and I love, it, it makes me fill in the plot because I feel like I have a deadline to get to the end and see if I can pull it off. Um, and so really that's where that one came through. And what was interesting was after the book was in editing, in the editing process and in the pipeline for publication, I got a phone call and it was one of the ladies from the fourth floor of the Barbizon. And I'm sure she wanted to know why I wouldn't stop bothering them. <laughs> and, um, and she was lovely. She explained they're very private. Sure. They're really not Can interested imagine. in talking. But, you know, as a journalist, I was asking her questions and we were, we had this lovely chat. She'd been a journalist. She reminded me a lot of the character in the book, Stella, so I thought, oh, good, I got that right. <laughs> and, um, and she came to the launch party, which was oh, like having royalty. That's awesome. Yeah. I think my favorite, I mean, I, I love the book, but one of my favorite parts was how they sort of make, there's like this runny joke about it being the Sylvia Plath yes. building, and everyone's like, yeah, she only lived there for like a month. <laughs> yes. Exactly. <laughs> and that, again, was the very famous resident who I had to mention, but, right. not, but not actually not yeah. make it about her, because right. there's been a lot about her right. already. Right, Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, you, you mentioned that you're a journalist before, and, and you talked about kind of giving yourself deadlines for this, but 
what was the experience like going from okay I'm writing thousand words 1200 words to writing a, f- a full novel did you when you say you gave yourself deadlines was it like a week at a time did you try to did you try to keep to the same kind of writing schedule that you would as a journalist or did you find you would write at different times I'm always I'm we're always fascinated like the craft of writing yeah you know I I gave myself a word count every day that I had to write and I think because I'm used to writing every day it it naturally occurred whereas maybe if you haven't done that before it wouldn't and um, and as I pulled away from journalism it started taking that you know filling in all that all that time and so really the process to me was was getting out a first draft and seeing if I could do that and then a lot of revision because as any journalist knows you need a good editor you need second eyes on it you know you don't know what the final product should be it's really you need a professional to weigh in it's a collaboration and so once I did um, work with my editor at Dutton Stephanie Kelly who was remarkable it just became this really fun process where we you know with both books we she would find places and just I'd be so inspired to go and see if I could you know fix that section or add to this section or change this character and so it's a long it's a long yeah. process I'm, I'm laughing because so many authors tell us the editing process is a bear and they're like <laughs> we've had so many authors who are like I'm fortunate to have become kind of friendly with some of these authors and you'll see on like Twitter they're like going through the third draft this is never going to end it's just making me laugh you're like yeah it was so much fun to find these different places to change like that's an incredible thing I don't know that I've heard anyone else say that they love the ending oh, process I don't think so yeah. I think having gone to Columbia Journalism School mm-hmm. and you were edited it was just you were told what was wrong and you know yeah. it was that's probably what it is but I, but I have to say for me pulling doing the first draft is like pulling teeth I find that very hard to get a scene on blank paper even if I know where it's going it's I'm in that process right now for the third book and it's you know so so we all have our <laughs> have our issues well now I have to ask can you tell us about the third book I can I'll give you it's set at Grand Central Terminal okay Ooh. in the 1920s oh my gosh because yeah. I discovered you didn't even have to say anything else to right, tell you right? that's, that's well, perfect right. can you but say you, cover already please, right? say, please okay. say more but you've already got two readers here <laughs> But what I discovered doing, you know, again, doing a lot of research, um, I was worried about doing it there because I thought, well, a train station, right. how do I add drama? But I discovered that there was an art school called the Grand Central School of Art that was in the top floor of one. It was founded by John Singer Sargent. It had 900 students a year. It ran for 17 years. Wow. And I thought, well, that's where I'll set it. Because I love, you know, for the first book, there was jazz and music. The second book, it's more architecture. Mm-hmm. And so for the third book, it's more about oh, art and sure. the movement from realism to abstract art. And that's beautiful. So it's really fun. Well, I'm already excited. It's okay, good. Good. <laughs> So, to finish it. I'm just imagining because. Do you need any beta readers? Let me know. <laughs> I will, actually. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, I'm just imagining, like, normally people will always ask, like, where do you get your ideas for, for your stories? But having this, these stories set in New York City and these specific time frames, I feel like you probably are, almost have too many. How do you narrow down, like, one specific story? Because New York City, there's. Yeah. literally a million different things you could talk about. You're absolutely right. And I have to say, once the dollhouse was done with editing and moving along, and I was trying to think of where to set the second book, 
I was inundated with ideas and kind of overwhelmed and nothing was clicking. And then I came up from the subway at 72nd Street and I looked up and the Dakota was there and the sun was, you know, hitting off and it was glowing. And I thought, oh, of course, that's where it should be. It was so strange. And then um, an amazing book came out that was really about the history. It had floor plans. It had the original people who lived there. Oh, wow. it, it, and that became my Bible. It's by a man named Andrew Alpern, and it's um, just terrific. And so I had something to build on. I had concrete ways to do it. But the problem was I'd never been inside, and I didn't know anyone who lived there. Yeah, it's and it's really exclusive. Easy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just, like, walk in. Right. <laughs> they don't like that. They don't like that. And so I thought, well, how do I write about it without having gone inside? And my good friend of mine, who's a real estate agent, she said, well, you know, Lauren McCall's apartment is on the market because she died a couple of years ago, and it's going for only $23 million. Let's go look at it. Yeah, that's it. Oh, my God. Not just like any apartment, but Lauren McCall's. Yeah. And so I got like my most expensive pocketbook. I put a scarf around my neck. I threw on sunglasses. And we show up. And I am, and her apartment is amazing because it's got all the original period detail. It's die for. And I'm staring at everything, trying to memorize it while asking very dumb questions about, oh, is there parking? <laughs> How about a gym? <laughs> she must have thought I was. Is mad. there parking? <laughs> <It was> so, <laughs> but it was very helpful. And later, I did um, meet a current resident who gave me a beautiful tour of the place, from the basement up to the floors where the staff lived. And what's wild about it is the, um, it, it's unusual. The hallways are really narrow, but the ceilings are really high. So there's this funny feeling as you walk around. The proportions are yeah. really interesting, and that was helpful to know the layout. Do you think there is a certain point where the person showing you around was like, all right, they're not really interested. <laughs> I, Honestly, just get it's out. Like, it's yeah. like if I were, if, like, if I were like to walk half. into like, um, like a Rolls-Royce like Rolls yes. dealership, and they just look at me and they're like, I'll explain this car to you, sir, but it's clear in your jeans and a t-shirt, you are not purchasing anything. Yes, yes. Oh, exactly. Um, oh. We, we need to talk about Broadway. We do oh, need to talk about Broadway. Oh, lovely. So, we have a million different ways we can go with this. We're huge Broadway fans, giant Broadway nerds. Yes. Um, favorite show? At the moment, Dear Evan Hansen. Have you seen Did it? it? No. I am not. I, no. I wanted to and get a chance. So we're really fortunate in Cleveland. We actually have outside of New York City, we have the largest theater district yes. in America. Yes. So everything eventually comes yes. to Cleveland. Yeah, eventually come. Yeah, we have Hamilton coming next year. So um, it might not be that far behind. Then. Yeah, hopefully it won't be that far behind. But um, so have you always had a fascination with Broadway? I have. My parents would bring me in um, to see shows, and I acted all through high school and, and college and, and beyond. And um, yeah, so I, I, I'm really more attuned to straight plays. I, you know, The Real Thing was the first play I ever saw. And, um, and you know, there's plays like Chitney and these amazing revivals that are being done that are incredible. Um, but Dear Evan Hansen was one of the few musicals that I yeah. just loved. Um, one that was just recently in Cleveland was uh, The Curious Incident of the Dog yes. in the Nighttime. Yes. That was... The, 
incredible. Did you get a chance to see that? I did not, but I saw pictures of the staging of it, and it was just so phenomenal. Beautiful. And the book was so right. good. So you had this raw material to build on, mm -hmm. and they really took it and elevated it. The same with Hamilton, yeah. where it was a, a biography that right. he was inspired to. So really, books are the germ of all good things. There you go. <laughs> that is wonderful. So you can send a book at one of the theaters. That would probably be fun. Yes. Oh, and there are some really good ghosts in some of those theaters. Yes, oh, yeah. And yeah. those same thing. All the they're so they've not only are the theaters old, but because they turn them over for yeah. all the different shows, there's so many different. Sorry. You said ghosts in the theater. I was thinking fan of the opera immediately, oh, okay. but <laughs> they, they are. There's so many. There's so much history there. Right. We, yeah. we could have moved this part if you want to use this story book. Yeah. Um, right. Do you? I, love yeah. I love it. I like this collaboration. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. There you go. That's what we're here for. I actually find myself doing that when um, when I'll go through, even just in Cleveland, our theaters are, are old as well. When I'll be in there, I get that feeling like I'll start thinking in my brain who was who's been there before me. Yes. Do you, when you were going through like, Lauren McCall's apartment, obviously like. When you're going through these different places, yeah. like, do you ever have those thoughts while you're writing these stories of like, all the people that have been there before you? Oh, absolutely. And I think that's what I like to bring to life for the address that it's from the point of view of this woman who comes from London to work as the first manager of the apartment building and is thrown into it without a lot of, um, <laughs> of, of knowledge of right. what she's supposed to do. And, um, yeah, I, I love that kind of thing. And I, that came from reading in the history that the first female manager of the Dakota actually was in the 1930s. And I was curious, wow, what was that like for her? And so I just transported her back in time for my book. But it came from an actual actual event. Yeah, I do like the how you sort of blend facts and fiction with your characters when it comes to that. Can you sort of, I mean, like, how do you decide which real people to kind of use as inspiration? How do you kind of incorporate? Yeah, you know, Henry Hardenberg, who was the architect of the Dakota, was very interesting, but I, I, I couldn't make his, he had a very, you know, interesting life, but not as vivid as you would want in a historical fiction. Right. So to do an architect as the main character who works for him was a way into that. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I like to draw on real things. For example, in the 1985 section, the character of Bailey is this interior decorator who's in the middle of a nightmare yes. decoration <laughs> where she's stripping one of the original apartments of all its detail and replacing it with postmodernism yeah. decor. And that is based on an actual tenant, a celebrity tenant at the Dakota who did something very similar and, you know, much to the chagrin of the co-op board. Yeah. And Adam and I. Like that's yeah, I was that upsets me. Thinking of, I want to live in this glorious, wonderful building that was built so long ago and is gorgeous. The architecture is incredible. And now I want to change everything about it. Yes. I, uh, yeah. How dare you? Go live in a high rise that was built in 2015. But at the same time, I think New York, you know, cities like that change. It was interesting walking around Chicago here. It's just the architecture is really, really gorgeous. In New York, you're really filling in beautiful old buildings with all glass, you know. Yeah. Again, really interesting in their own right, mm -hmm. but it's a different sense. And so the city has to change, um, but for me that is, it is tough to see yes. sometimes. I'm okay with the city changing. I'm more so like, if you're going to go into one of the old buildings, 
Yeah. Maybe accept it for the beauty yeah. that I already have. Well, hopefully the current residents are not doing those changes because yes. they understand the history uh -huh. and appreciate it. Yes. yes, I think the co-op board is more strict. Probably. And, and in fact, they have in the storage in the basement all the old bathtubs and pocket doors, and, and so they're they're really trying to keep anything so it doesn't get tossed out. Um, so we are at, we're a library company and we're at a library conference, so it only feels right for us to ask, do you have any stories or fond memories of libraries from when you are growing up or even from recently? Yeah, I mean they're an integral part to everything. My mother would take my brother and I to a library every week and we'd stock up. We're huge readers. Our family would just sit around reading. Um, that was a good time. And, um, and then when I came to New York, you know, as I started working on the first draft of the, the Barbizon book, I would go to the New York Library of the Performing Arts, which is in um, Lincoln Center, and you, there's this area that you can look out on over the plaza and wow. sit right. And it, for me, it kept me in my seat and stopped me from raiding my fridge and doing laundry instead of writing, because I had to stay there. There yeah. were people around me working, and I couldn't get up and dance right. around or anything. <laughs> And so that was really important to me. And then um, I used Columbia Libraries for a ton of research for the, the new book. I'm there going through old architectural drawings of Grand Central, which is brilliant. And then um, the library at 42nd Street in New York uh, is I've used for research constantly and in fact shows up in both books mm -hmm. um, because the characters have to do the research I did. Yeah. And so it's great to send them there and have them yeah. you know, experience. Yeah. Love being able to edit our own stuff. <laughs> um, uh, go ahead. What kind of books did you like? I mean, were you did you read historical fiction when you were younger, or did now that you write it? Is it? Yeah, you know, I did. I always, I always loved it. Um, but really, it started in my thirties. I think I started reading a ton of it. So Geraldine Brooks and Kathleen Tesoro, and and that's. Um, caught my imagination. You know, listening to the audiobook of People of the Book by Geraldine Brooks was just a transformational experience to me that you could create something like that. Um, I just lost my train of thought. Good job. Uh, good job by me. Uh, so, what are you most excited about, just from a, a writing standpoint, and the things that you know, whether it's working on your current book or like, what's one thing that you just you wake up in the morning and you're like, I love this. Um, <laughs> I would say I love I love the accomplishment of of reaching a goal. I'm one of those people with a list every day. Oh yeah. I'm a big lister. Yes. And so for me to finish a chapter gives me this huge sense of satisfaction. To finish the first draft again, huge. And so for me it's it's seeing if I can pull it off and having the discipline to, you know, really get it done and see if I can make it become the way I have it in my head on paper, which is always the challenge. Um, but yeah, that's what, I, I love what I do. I absolutely love it. My lists, I, I'm the same way. I, Joe's better at planning than I am, but from a list standpoint, I same thing. I love being able to cross things off. Then I get to the point where sometimes you have those really busy days where your list gets really long, and it does the exact opposite for me. I have like that panic attack where I'm yeah, like, yeah, I should have written all yes. this down. Yes. Oh, 
Or sometimes exactly. you just like add stuff you've already finished, but you want to like be able to cross it off. <laughs> oh yeah, if if I forgot to make my like, if I've forgotten to make my week long list on a Monday, on a Tuesday I'll do it, and I'm like, look how productive I'm being, just crossing like nine things off. I'm like, I haven't done any of this this morning, but I sure Doesn't feel matter. good. Doesn't matter. Exactly. Without my list, I would be lost. Um, okay, so towards the end of our podcast, yeah. we do what we call the Nerd Nine, just nine lighthearted questions. No one can see this through a podcast, but I don't have the sheet of paper in front of me, so I'm going to try and do this from memory, and we'll see if it actually works. It's a test, yeah. Jill, yeah. I'm counting on you to help me out with this. So, okay. first one is, what's the last book you finished reading? I just finished a book called um, Astonish Me by Maggie Shipstead. It was recommended by a writer friend of mine named Jamie Renner, whose opinions I trust completely. And it was, it's just the most brilliant book. Uh, it was published in 2014, I think, but uh, I'd read anything she does. Do you have a favorite place to read? The subway. Oh, yeah. Because if you get a seat and you've got a long way to go, it's the perfect way to spend the time. That's a big yeah. F if you get a seat. Oh, yeah. That's... It's true. But... Um, what is, do you have a guilty pleasure? Like I tell everyone, mine is the amount of pictures of my dogs I put on Instagram. Far too many. But do you have something that you're just like, I probably shouldn't be doing this as often as I am? You know, when I had my head a golden doodle, he passed away a couple years ago. And yes, yeah, she was absolutely, I would have yeah. been the same as you. Um, I would say I love a good white burgundy. Yes. You know, that, that's, that's a good reward one. at the end of the day. Yeah. That's a good one. Uh, what's one place you'd like to travel that you have not yet been to? <laughs> Yes, I've never it. been, and I've heard amazing things. We actually interviewed an author whose name escapes me at this moment. It was for the um, Together We Read program in Canada. She That's lives right. in Nova Scotia, and we talked for like five minutes about our book, and then 25 minutes about Nova Scotia. She completely sold me on it. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Um, are you a coffee person or a tea person? Coffee in the morning, but tea at four, English parents. Sure. That makes, that sure. makes a whole lot of that sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Are you a cat person or a dog person? Dog. Okay, Jill, it's not your fault. Oh, it's fine. I'm a dog person, she's a cat person. This is our eternal struggle. Uh, do you have a favorite food? I love a good lobster roll. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a good answer. Yeah. I'm missing one for the last one. Are you? I think so. Uh-oh. That's okay. It'll come to you. If you could have dinner with one person, alive or dead, who would you choose? It would be William Shakespeare. Yes. I'd love to find answer. out what really went on, and there's so yes. much mystery about who he was. I'm of the belief that you would need to have a group dinner because I think he's more than one person. That's what I think personally. Yeah. Speaking of Shakespeare and Broadway, have you seen uh, Something Rotten? Yes. Okay. Yes. We can talk more about that after. Maybe I saw that recently, but um, I think that was all of this. Yeah? Okay. Our last question for you then is what do you hope readers take away from reading your books? I hope that they'll They'll think differently about the way women's roles are perceived, both back in 100 years ago, 50 years ago, and today. And sort of how being a wife or mother versus a career person has changed in the ways it's possibly stayed the same. That's perfect. Thank you so much for joining us today. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. 
We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.